Hello and welcome to the first ever podcast from the Birmingham Food Council. My name's Nick Booth and I guess I'm here simply to keep the conversation going and help with the conversation. We're calling this series Making a Meal of It. It's a conversation about food, but it's not entirely about how yummy food is. Um, Yeah, food certainly is yummy and there are plenty of podcasts about that. But it's about where food comes from and the risks lying in the extraordinary chain of players and actions that bring that food to our mouths. So you'll hear stories from the food supply chain and this podcast I suppose is a place for chewing over issues of risk and resilience. So there are two other people in the room with me at the moment. Uh, First is Kate Cooper. Hello Kate. Hello Nick. Uh, Kate is the Executive Director of the Birmingham Food Council and you'll tell us a bit more about that in a minute. But before that Kate, um, is there one thing about risk and food that's particularly on your mind? Yes, indeed. I don't think we've got a problem with getting calories into people's bellies, but I do think there's a problem globally and indeed nationally with getting enough nutrients. Right, okay. And Parveen, Parveen Mehta, first of all, thank you so much for hosting us here at Minor Weir and Willis. This is an extraordinarily big building. There's an awful lot of interesting things going on here. Hello. Hello, Nick. (laughs) Um, Again, before you talk a bit more about your business... Anything in terms of risk that's most on your mind at the moment? Yes, I think food security is always at the back of my mind, but increasingly, like Kate, I've come to realise that um, food nutrition is higher up the list. People focus on calories, but actually food nutrition, particularly uh, particularly now as we see the impact of COVID, is, ex- I think, extremely important. So you're both actually worried about something very similar, the same, the same problem. For those of you who are listening, uh, let me just give you some uh, sort of in- online details. You can find these podcasts at birminghamfoodcouncil.org. We are also at Birmingham Food Council on Twitter, which is actually spelt B-H-A-M Food Council on Twitter. And you can obviously use whatever hashtag you fancy if you want to join in the conversation. We'll pop this on hashtag food safety and hashtag food security. And obviously just to remind ourselves that we're in this brilliant British city of Birmingham. We'll probably also pop on the hashtag Brumfood. So, Kate, let me just start with you. A little bit of context. What is the Birmingham Food Council? Well, there's a question. It's an independent body and we spend most of our time thinking about things that other people don't. We try and do stuff that other people don't. As you said earlier, lots of people look at recipes and food and how yummy it is. We look at food security, food safety, assurance and integrity, and also food and the economy, which amazingly very few people do. And the Birmingham element, you're looking at it through the lens of a city. Uh, yes, indeed. It's because we live here, and but we are highly dependent not just on UK food system, but the global food system. So we can't really separate it out. Lovely. Thank you. So Parveen, tell me about Minor Weir and Willis. I mean, I'm particularly interested in what... Uh, what are your products? Where does it come from? And, and how, do, how do they fit in with the food supply chain? Wow, where do I start? Um, right, so we're a second generation family business. And we've specialised in fresh produce for almost 50 years now. Our supply chain ac- extends across the world. So, uh, and, of course, we also grow in the UK. So in Worcestershire, Evesham will be growing produce, the, uh, things like sugar snap peas, mange too fine beans, uh, squashes, uh, and then counter-seasonal, because of course we import almost half of our food food supply, fresh food supply. Counter-seasonally, we'll import stuff from Europe, 
from uh, South America, from Africa, uh, Eastern Europe, all over the place really. So our, our supply chain extends around the world and we have partnerships with key growers around the world as well. So do you are all of your relationships with growers partnerships or do you actually own land and grow yourself? Um, we, we have both. We have, um, we have partnerships, we have key suppliers, which we've dealt with for several years, and we own land and contract land on which we, we grow. And is that land only in the UK? Do you have farms abroad? Farms in the UK. We've got farms in Spain, in Holland, and joint venture farms in Kenya, in, and in South America and Africa. Where where does this food fit into the food supply chain? Is it where, where ultimately is it going to? We've got several channels really. You've got the conventional retail channel, so the, the, the multiple retailers. We've got food food service, food to go. So the, the, the outlet you might pop into on your way to work, uh, prepare food. I won't I won't name all the brands. Uh, we've got food manufacturing, so they will do. Uh, they'll take our products. They will. Uh, dice them, peel them, cook them and put them into food meals and then we've got other channels like um, meal kits and uh, traditional channels like multiple uh, sorry, um, wholesale markets which goes to the, the independent retailer. And do you mind if I ask how long you've been involved with the business? Oh, I was I graduated in physics, I was going to be a scientist <laughs> or, a jet, or a jet pilot and I ended up uh, in Birmingham Wholesale Market uh, literally pulling barrows and trading, did everything from making the coffee to answering the phone. Uh, but I, I must admit, I was surrounded by commerce since from, from, from when I can remember from the proverbial corner shop when my father established the business. So what has changed then in that time? You, it sounds like a lot has changed. The, the structure of the supply chain has changed. Provenance has changed. We know, we know more about where things are coming from, who's grown them. Food safety has improved drastically. Consistency. I suppose the negative thing is there's so much good, rich food, so many different varieties, but because of our taste, changing tastes, we only get a sample of a few of them. We get, we get to see very orderly, standardised stuff. And, uh, and it's thousands of different varieties we've never really seen and flavours we haven't tasted. But that's the price you pay for standardisation, commoditization. And it sounds like the way your business works has, as opposed to just moving food in and moving it out, you're processing it much more, your relationship with your customers is much deeper than it used to be? Yes, I think that's the only way you can operate. We treat our customers as we would our own business, high service levels, we protect their brand, we protect our brand, and we've got multiple channels, so we've got different types of customers. The best relationship is where it's mutually beneficial where you're working towards each other's uh, combined objectives and they those include social objectives as well so we can't do it because you need to keep this building clean but if we were to go and have a wander around this enormous place what sort of things would we see right so here we we built a uh, we, we took a shell and we kitted out and we've now got 100 and about 165,000 square foot of uh, a, a production facility which includes storage, includes warehousing and distribution. Uh, and in the production areas, we bring in goods from the UK and from around the world, and they may be loose we uh, or they may be pre-packed, and we will pack those into different combinations. First of all, we will check them for quality, 
Then we'll pack them into different combinations. We would label them in different formats. So you're, you may be familiar with loose product. You may be f in baskets. You may be familiar with pre-packs with labels on, flow-wrapped film, sort of things you may see in a, in a multiple retailer when you go to the fresh produce section. We coordinate the orders and distribute those to n those nationally to big big retailer depots. So we cover the whole country, Scotland and Ireland, actually. So what sort of things? I, I mean. Could I have bought my avocado from through you? Absolutely. We we bring in avocados and they are un, in an unripened state. We put them through a ripening cycle and then we create different levels. There'll be a, a ready treat, so you can literally pick it off the shelf uh, and eat it. They'll be triggered. But avocado, although it's a significant category, we, we do lots of other things. Um, traditional things like sweet potatoes, potatoes, butternut squash, cabbage, lettuce, all the way through to really exotic things like passion fruit. I wouldn't call mangoes exotic anymore, but we do a lot of mangoes. Uh, pak choy, baby corn, mange too, fine beans, asparagus, the whole spectrum of products. So, risk. Let's get down to risk. Talk me through how food gets here and what are the risks in that part of your process of getting the food grown and into this building? If you talk about risk on its own, if we, if we park the commercial aspects, which dictates, price dictates what you buy and where you buy it from, as well as uh, quality standards, as well as part partners, but as well as good growing standards. If we, uh, if we, if we uh, park that... We'll get product straight from the grower. It might come in overland via sea freight or via air freight in refrigerated transport. We'll clear it at the ports, at the airports. We'll bring it in here, split it down, put it through a processing point, distribute it through our channels. So we have to take care of all the commercial deals. We have to take care of all the, the provenance, checking its its... It's coming from a proper source. It's been packed in the right way. It's been packed safely, grown safely. And we've got to make a commercial return on that as well. So your relationship with your customers means that you need to understand all the risks that might end up in my body between all of these different parts of the process, transport, growing, however it's pulled out of the ground and turned into something that's transportable, the whole range of things. Absolutely, and, we, and that risk we have to take accountability for. The customer is interested in us delivering on time in full to high standard, and that's part of the commercial contract. Our job is then to deliver to those standards, protect uh, their brand, protect our brand, protect um, society as well. Uh, and I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that we are responsible for gainfully employing literally thousands of people in our supply chain around the world. And uh, an enterprise is good from that aspect because if we didn't exist, they may not have an income. And we provide a good, safe source of continued income for, for several people around the world. Do you mind being more specific about the sorts of risks that you have to worry about for the food coming towards you? Okay, there's, there's financial risk, which is exchange rates. Obvious one, it's just, it's just a mechanical thing. You've got basically calculate that and hedge it. The transit risk, how does the product survive its journey, get here on time? Because if it, if it gets here, if it's delayed, it can go off. 
if it gets here too early, it's no good for us and we end up stocking it. We have to look at food safety throughout the chain. So as we work backwards, and then we go on to the, the growing country and the growing source. And then we, we have to do even more due diligence in terms of finding the right partner, finding the right partner, the right products, and the people who work to the right growing standards, and people who have the right social standards as well. So are they treating their workforce fairly? Is the workforce safe? Is it not being exploited? And I think that's important as well. And we have to manage all of those risks, and we have to audit against those risks. So we will go out on a regular frequency checking that those standards are being maintained, checking that the people standards are being maintained, the product standards, and also the pesticide risks, the food safety risks. Kate, I'm just wondering if you've got any thoughts at this point. You've named one of the risks, which is pesticides. Uh, is another risk, in effect, um, pollution, um, plants that are grown in polluted soils or under polluted air? Yes, good question. You're absolutely right. We know in some countries we have to make sure this, the soil that the, the the products are grown in are fit for growing because otherwise you can get heavy metal contamination. And we know some, yeah. some regions in the world are really poor from that. If the water is con- contaminated as well, that comes into the whole fold of risk management. Not only do we manage it, but we're audited on that as well. Uh, and I think that's good. Uh, and it, it, and by having those standards, you have a level playing field. And the good thing about the UK, and in fact a lot of Europe, is you have to be a good partner to play. Uh, and that, that's one advantage where we are these days in the past. There's, there's lots of opportunity to abuse the system, and lots of issues around provenance, uh, lots of issues about product, not lots, but issues around product adulteration. And it's harder to do that in our sector now. And I think that's great. Great for society, great for us. Great great to build a level playing field for the good partners in the sector. So if you are looking for a new partner in Africa or in Asia where you can grow food, are you, are you starting with things like testing the soil? and Or do you, do you start looking for businesses that are already working to these sorts of standards? These days you have to find partners who have already established a degree of credentials. It's, it's rare you come across a new investor. You want to find someone established and maybe small, and then we'll do knowledge knowledge transfer and expertise just to scale them up and to get them up to even higher standards. But there is a baseline beyond which we won't um, we won't go. We believe in long-term relationships. If you want to win in this game, you have to have a long-term relationship. So... Of the food coming in, of this part of the process we've been talking about, which bits give you the most trouble? Food has, be- food has become... When I say food security, f- food has become a highly marketable product these days. But we're a bit insular. We think that... Um, Everything has to come to the UK, but with global supply chains and people now competing for food, it can go to different countries. So you you are you have to secure good supplies and you have to pay a fair price. So that's a risk in itself. If you do not pay a fair price, you cannot secure future supplies. That's the first risk, and of course, that has to be with good sources. Lo- smarter people actually develop longer term 
sources and they have other channels so for instance we will we will do whole crop deals with some of our suppliers and we'll send it to the uk and europe so that if we can't sell one size we'll sell the rest so that's that's good for our grower because then they can sell the whole crop and they're not parts of the crop are not being cherry picked that's good for them that's good for us and that's good for the channels that operate now because you will get food surface take one type of size retail take another size type of size meal kits will take a, a, a different side and then you've got you know, other channels like fair share which are, which will take anything because it's uh, avoid waste so we want to make sure that we secured those supplies and they, they have the right quality and the standard then you've got the mechanical risks in between can you secure good pack house facilities can you secure good transit routes whether it's sea freight over land by air and can you keep the uh, supply chain in control at the right temperature and there's lots of delays that can happen you saw the recent thing with the vessel which blocked the canal and that that put a ripple through the side effect brexit covid we've seen all sorts of ripples that we've had to deal with which uh, some of them were left to field events that yeah we'd never thought about they were there but no one ever thought they would have happened and that's highlighted some uh wrinkles in the supply chain that we all have to think about more deeply in future it does sound to me like you are acting as a sort of a hub that strips out waste as well when when you talk about being able to buy a whole crop and and you distribute it in lots of different ways that's different from the way we have been brought up to believe supermarkets cherry pick and things like that that you're able to do something very positive there Yes, you're right, and I think that, that's that's the way it has to go because the amount of food we waste just generally downstream in the house, in the house in, in in the store is high. People don't see the upstream effects. So recently, I was talking with one of our farmers. We would cherry pick the crop for retail. There'd be loads of stuff left in the field which nobody wants, and they'd, we'd literally walk over it and. There's nothing wrong with it except what people class as wonky veg. It's perfectly good. It's just slightly bent, maybe not the perfect size, but perfectly good to eat, perfectly safe. To be able to harvest that and put it through a channel which values it is great for society, great for the carbon footprint, and economically it's good as well. So I I think that's, that's really great. I think we should be doing more of that. And actually, during the pandemic, we, we've done more of that because those food supplies um, have gone to channels which were just happy to get nutritious, good food, at virtually no cost or very little cost. That's shown what we can achieve by focusing on food waste. We, we do throw away a lot to meet a certain perfect standard. And for, I, I wouldn't eat a banana, for instance, unless I th- the sugar spots were on it. But these days, if someone looks at a banana has got a sugar spot, they say, oh, no, I took it away. It's out of date. I was brought up on, on, on bananas which had sugar spots on. I don't, <laughs> don't eat anything without sugar spots on. Kate, I'm just gonna, I'm, in a moment, I'm going to move on to what happens once food leaves here and what risks are there. Kate, any thoughts at this point or anything you want to? chip in. I think I just want to emphasise Parveen's point about the global competition for safe food. There's a growing middle class across the world and we don't have any exclusive rights to safe nutritious food and it's going to cost more so we have to be able to pay more for it. 
So affordable food is not to do with the price of the produce, it's to do with people having the economic means to buy it. So are you saying that we've sort of assumed, because we live in a prosperous Western country, that we've always got access to high-quality food, and that may well be changing? Yes, indeed. Exactly that. And is that what you're experiencing, the battle for that high-quality food? Yes. The the point I'm trying to make is you'll be able to get high-quality food, but you're you can't assume that you are, you're going to get it because of the price you pay. You're going to have to pay the proper economical price for it. And there are other people competing with that. If you look at um, Africa, the population's there. If you look at China, if you look at India, the middle class is there. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're wealthy, they want fine product, and they're going to pay a premium. So why would someone want to ship it halfway across the world to the UK or to America when actually someone locally is prepared to pay as much or without all the hassle or slightly slightly less without all the hassle. So what what we experience in our supermarkets is going to start changing. The price of it is going to start going up. What's available to us is going to start shifting too. And I guess we've seen that in the last year anyway, haven't we? Yes, unless we reinvent our model, unless society reinvents their model and their approach to food. And of course, the cost of production, one, one thing that the food industry is, it's labour intensive. There's only so far you can automate. Some, some sectors can be automated more than others. Um, that may help keep the price of food down for a while, but eventually whoever has got the buying power will uh, secure the best resources. You've got the food here safely. You've passed it through your processes and it leaves here. Are there things that you worry about once it's left here in terms of where it's going and what happens to it next? Are there risks that we should care about there? I'm less worried about what happens when it leaves us because we know that it's being packed to a high standard. And generally the, the last leg after us is, is into the final, the final mile to the consumer. Yes, you get waste in that area. The main risks there are logistical type risks. At the moment, for instance, you can't get drivers. You can't. Some people are, are refusing loads. That's a quirk of the pandemic and the Brexit effect. So, can you get vehicles? Can you get drivers? Can you get it to the destination on time? That is probably the least riskiest. Can you reduce waste in the last leg? That's a dilemma that a lot of our customers grapple with all the time because if it's not handled properly and some of it may be silly things like someone's forgot to rotate a stock code or they've left something at the back of a store you'd be surprised how often that happens there's a lot of waste that happens that way but there are there are different approaches to that you can reduce weight by by um different types of packaging different types of controlled atmosphere different types of date coding you can improve in those areas most products still reasonably good beyond the sell-by date. But we'd be so custom saying, well, the, the date's on there, it's, it's, it's bad, I've got to throw it away, and actually it's perfectly good for several days after. Do you think that's something we need to change? Yes, I think we've, uh, our society's got to a point where we've forgotten how to think for ourselves. Use your eyes, use your senses, use your gunaleptic techniques and say, would I eat that? Does it look okay? And if it does, then fine. And these days we look at a date uh, I often have this discussion with my missus. Some of the yogurt's one day over. It's not the end of the world, you know. If if, if a banana's got a little sugar spot on it, it's, it's spot on it. It's not the end of the world. It's going to taste perfectly fine. 
let me just go back to the thing both of you talked about at the beginning, and I'll start with you, Parveen, but I'll come to you, Kate, as well. You said something much bigger, actually, than even the risks you've talked about that your business has to manage, which is, can we get enough of the right food to the right people, which is about nutrition, isn't it? So how do you understand that as a risk, and what do you think we can or should or ought to be doing about it? I think as a society, we don't understand enough because it's not being, the educational system hasn't covered it in depth, the difference between calorie-rich food and nutrient-rich food. And it really came home to me during the pandemic as you look at the people who have been affected worse by the pandemic. And if you are fit, if you've got a good, healthy biome, so your your gut health, uh, you've got a good exercise regime, you, you don't eat so much sugar and so much processed food, you are likely not only to survive the pandemic, but you're going to live longer and you're going to live healthier. A lot of people don't have the knowledge to understand that, and this is all cutting edge. It's going to become more apparent in the next 10 years. But as the populations age, they're going to be looking at longevity and at health. Then you realise that actually you need to be eating nutrient-rich food. You need to be nurturing your gut biome, your gut health. And to do that, you've got to go back to whole foods, less processed, less chemicals, less less pesticides. And I think eventually society will pivot when they realise if you do want those benefits, you've got to change your eating habits. I don't blame society because we've missed the messages through our educational system and lots of people just don't know it. They, they're so accustomed to processed, calorie-rich food, they don't know any better. Case. Um, I agree entirely with what Parveen said, but I think there's a a role that only government can play, which is to curb the promotion, uh, the making and the promotion of high-calorie foods with low nutrients, what we call the drug foods. And without the curbing of those corporate powers, this will continue. The other thing that I think is necessary to understand is the scale of what it is. We're meant to have five a day. Actually, if you look at the research, it's 10 a day. So you're in a family of four. That's 40 portions of fruit and veg every day. That's expensive. It's very expensive. And I, I, I go back to it. It's not a matter of making these products cheaper. They can't be done cheaply and safely. It's a matter of providing each household with enough money for a good diet. Can I just check something? You used the term there, drug foods, and I've heard you say this before, and anybody listening to this might go, whoa, what on earth are you talking about? What on earth are you talking about? What on earth I'm talking about? Um, it's a term that was um, devised, um, I don't know, 80 years ago, to talk about sugar, caffeine, um, alcohol, and chocolate, all of which are have a drug effect on your brain. And they're known as the drug foods. And interestingly, in the UK, we've got this. It's just a quirk of history, but it's a fortunate one, is that these drug foods carry VAT. So food is zero rated, but if it's standard rated VAT, it's something that's not good for you. And nobody knows what they are, but it's things like chocolate bars and, and sweets and confectionery and crisps. Crisps, which aren't that, but they're designed to be Moorish, literally to release serotonin in your brain. So these are the drug foods, and they are all the, the corporations that you know advertise and sponsor things like, I don't know, 
the Olympics, the 2022 Commonwealth Games. I actually haven't noticed, the, sorry, I haven't noticed the Euro football games. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they are supported by these large corporates who make and promote these goods. It sounds to me like both of you are talking about something here, this concern about nutrition, which is going, we're going in one particular direction. You, do you both feel that we're, we're edging too far away from food as nutrition? I do. Um, if you'd asked me that question years ago, I, I would have probably given you a new answer. But as I become more enlightened and more mature, I'm beginning to realise these are the factors. Uh, wouldn't it be great if we had n- nutritious, rich, processed food? If someone developed something with very uh, less salt, less sugar, less so less serotonin, dopamine effects, but perfectly good for your body. And and actually, I think. Um, so rather than deal with supplements to make up the nutrition, it wouldn't be great to have some foods which do that. And, and you know, there are some perfectly good examples of food that are great for your gut biome, great, great, great for your health, in different because they, they do different, uh, they, they they affect different pathways in your body which are good for you. Uh, take an example, um, broccoli, broccoli sprouts. They they give you. Uh, a, a senolytic product which helps get rid of you know your your um, what they call zombie cells in your body, which is great because it increases your longevity and health span. There's a pomegranate juice as a, 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 a superfood because it gives you uh, acromantia, which is great gut uh, bacteria, but it also um, helps uh, create another chemical, uh, urolithin A, which is you know, cutting edge now. But if they could develop that into a tablet, that that the benefits to your health are huge and this isn't out there in the public domain it's still literally thousands of papers have been produced on these things now but it won't hit the public domain for at least 10 years but it's it's available now and it's with simple foods that you're already consuming but it sounds like the biggest um, food security issue you're actually talking about isn't our ability to get decent safe food in and out of our supermarkets it's the choices we're making about what food we eat or the choices that are being foisted upon us which I, I think it's the choices that are being foisted upon us I, I think when people make people there isn't a person on this planet that wants to have a diet that does them gross harm everybody wants to be well and fit and healthy and mentally healthy as well I mean if you eat lots of fruit and vegetables your brain will work better which has a an effect on GDP as well would you believe which makes sense of course um you know, you don't have to be terribly scientific about it. You don't have to take a pill. You've just got to eat between five and ten portions of fruit and vegetables a day. That's it. That's hard work. It, well, it's fun, but if the food is, is ripe and delicious, if it's a, a soggy apple and a, a rather kind of nearly over sort of tasteless tomato, it's not. But really good quality fresh produce tastes brilliant. So there's two last things I just want to ask you. Um, is there anything you think that you know about the food sector that people will find really surprising? It's scale. They don't do the maths, and the reason why it's really hard to think in terms of millions and billions. We just don't compute those kind of things. So it's the quantity. The sheer quantity. The sheer quantity. You know, there's whatever, 1.2 million people in this city. You know, five a day. You know, you're talking millions of pieces of fruit and veg, and that's just for a day. For a year, you're into trillions. Uh, billions, I think, for the city, trillions for the, for the UK. 
I don't think people appreciate how complex our food supply chain is and how just in time it is. And we saw, like, touched on it uh, a few weeks ago when, when if you run out fuel for transport or if the borders get blocked, blocked, we quickly start running out food on our shelves. I think we carry on... F- we carry on applying the food agenda. We'll make sure we get our safe food grown safely into the right standards. But you have to make sure you can get it to where it needs to be. And with everything just in time, the, the, the vessel that blocked up the, the canal recently, we had so many containers on that that they were delayed several several weeks. And on some products, depending on what it is, that could be deadly. And there's a backup. Brexit came along and we had loads of delays at the port and we were having vehicles turning up late. It is very, very finely balanced. And particularly for us who import almost 50% of our food, we do such a good job. People don't notice how good a job we're doing, but it is finely balanced. And, and, and I think we have to protect that and think about how we secure it. And actually, I think you've probably both just said it. The, the other thing I was going to ask, is there anything else you want to say? Is there anything you would really like people? I think um, there's a lot more work to be done on that, that people don't impact, understand the impact of just growing food. And it's not just uh, impact of food safety, it's, it's labour, it's access to water. I'm surprised, uh, and being in the sector, I know how much water it takes to create some of these crops. And so what is the routes to market which gives you the balance between good nutrition right number of calories food safety and also minimum impact to the environment i think that's become, going to become even more important and increasingly i've come to realize that we we often many people eat far more calories than they need and uh, there's a lot of research now being done which actually says that if you re- re- eat 75% of your current calorie intake not only will you be healthier, uh, cognitive ability will be better, you will live longer, and you will live healthily. And ironically, I, I skip out a meal a day now, and I'm managing perfectly good on two meals a day. You touched on it much earlier. Those things you've talked about around water, around quantities of food, around the quality of food, around where it gets grown, these are also moral issues, aren't they? And they're questions of justice. Yes, absolutely. Um, People, I, I always get frustrated when people say, why are you importing food from halfway across the world? And I would say to that, well, first of all, you cannot. You, you've got to bring in food. For, take the UK as an example. You cannot grow it all. You've got to import it. The amount of f- food we, we use, the amount of food we avoid va- wasting by using uh, techniques like storing apples for eight months in controlled atmosphere, and they're perfectly good when they come out. But... We provide, global trade is good because one country has something someone else wants and they barter and that's how society has been built. And there are people halfway across the world which sell us minerals, we sell them something else or they sell us food and they get cash in return which they go and spend on goods. We are interrelated, people don't get that because it's such a complex marketplace. I see it because I'm in it and I'm proud that you know we are providing income sustainable income for people halfway around the world because if we did not import and there is a demand for it because people clearly pay for it who wants to you can buy why why buy baby corn for the same price you can buy 
20 apples or something. So there's a demand, and the food will go where the demand is. And so be it, those people around the world, they've got sustainability because of what we do. Kate, I know you've got so much to say about this, but there are any thoughts that you want to share at this point? I think I just want to reiterate uh, a little thing that you you said, Parveen, which was about apples can be stored, with, which means they're not wasted. So this idea of seasonal apples, you can buy an apple in, shall we say, November that's been grown in the UK and hasn't been wasted because harvests are actually gluts. Absolutely, yes. And that technology and that and the space that it takes is is a is an achievement isn't it absolutely and we need more investment in that kind of technology i mean i think it's really important that food security is a matter of um storing um, nutrient dense produce well and all nutrient dense produce without processing perishes within a few days or a few most a week or two so having that kind of technology to store and preserve produce matters to our future. Kate, thank you. Parveen, thank you so much for, one, allowing us to come here, two, being so generous with your thoughts and your insights. You can find much more thinking about food and food security and what it takes to feed a city like this brilliant city of Birmingham that we're in at the moment at birminghamfoodcouncil.org. We are, as I said earlier, Birmingham Food Council on Twitter, Beham Food Council on Twitter. And you've just listened all the way through to the end of our first ever podcast, so thank you.